Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As old millennials, we've been prioritizing health and wellness a lot more these past few years. While we may not be Spencer pratting it up, just not just yet. I mean, Emily, don't, don't count us out here. With crystals on our bodies... <laughs> We are thinking how much more we need to stay hydrated. Recently, I started traveling with at least one liquid IV stick in my bag to make sure I'm staying extra hydrated, especially when it gets hotter or after a night of a little too much fun. Liquid IV is the category-winning hydration brand fueling your well-being, and their hydration multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine. Use it the first thing in the morning, before a workout, when you feel a rundown, or after a long night out and on long flights. My sister recently got married, and as her maid of honor, I put liquid IV sticks in all the bachelorette party bags, and my sister and her husband put them in their goodie bags when we traveled to Costa Rica for the wedding. Those came in super handy after hitting an open bar in the sweltering heat. I'm a big fan of, yeah, it was very nice to have. I'm a huge fan of the watermelon ones and the tangerine flavor, which has an immune boost, even better when you're traveling and worried about keeping your immune system going. They fit easily in a toiletry case or even a tiny purse, so it's super easy to pour one in your water bottle. One stick of liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone and contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C, with three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks and probably, I mean, I know for a fact because I recently had a Gatorade, uh, a much better taste. Oh, absolutely. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code OLDMILLENNIALSPOD. That's OLDMILLENNIALSPOD at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code OLDMILLENNIALSPOD at liquidiv.com. Bye. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics of the 90s and 2000s. I'm one of your hosts, Emily Beijing. And I'm your other host, Margot Bupard. Margot, do you remember that movie about an asteroid that threatens our planet? Which one? You know, the one where it's up to a team of a few people to save us all from death and destruction. 
see above question which one. That, you know, that movie where the world comes together despite politics and adversarial relationships. Oh, are you talking about Jake Gyllenhaal in Day After Tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) As you can see, this description fits quite a few movies, and we're going to talk about two in particular today, specifically Deep Impact and Armageddon. I had a lot of fun writing this. So before we get into it, studios releasing similar projects or twin movies is a tale as old as time, beginning all the way back to the silent era when there were two studios releasing adaptations of Ivanhoe in the same year. It's something that still continues to this day, especially when we're talking documentaries or movies released about certain phenomena. Most of these end up being about, you know, on a streaming platform and they're racing against one another. It's like Hulu versus Netflix to see who gets the first documentary out on Firefest or Woodstock 99. But sometimes this pertains to movies or TV shows released around the same time that have nearly identical plots. Most recently, we had No Strings Attached and Friends with Benefits a little over a decade ago, even though we don't like most of the people that star in it. <laughs> um, we have our uh, bad movie night favorite, Olympus Has Fallen and White House Down, mm-hmm. Spectre and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And while we're still in the 2000s, we can't forget The Illusionist and The Prestige in 2006 because men needed not one, but two movies about music, about famous magicians. <laughs> Who can bang music. hot ladies? I think you're forgetting like the really, and they were both good. I they were both good, but they were both good. But it, it very much was made for a certain set of men out there who really wanted affirmation that they their magic would take them somewhere. In the late 90s, there was a pretty major string of these twin movies, and I pulled out a few highlights. So, Margot, let me know if you remember 1997, we had Dante's Peak and Volcano. Did you see either of these movies? I, so we were talking about this the other day, and I've always seen just one and not the other. And so in this scenario, I've seen Dante's Peak because also there was a uni- briefly a universal ride or universal yes. theme park experience that was Dante's Peak related. So I saw the movie tie into the, the show. I've also seen Dante's Peak, and similarly, <laughs> when one of the local theme parks I grew up by uh, was owned by Paramount for a while, there was a volcano-themed roller coaster oh. that I rode, though not I've never seen the movie to this day. In 1998, you had Ants and a Bug's Life, which we both talked about on BART. Uh, you've seen A Bug's Life, correct, and not yes. Ants. No, and then I briefly confused the plot of a uh, bee story with ants, but still <laughs> creepy regardless. I, I think that's oh, what I kind of oh, came round. to the conclusion to is my brain just filed it under creepy plot lines for a kid's movie. I saw Ants in 1998, later saw Bug's Life on video, but but that was the first one I saw, which is the inferior of the two, I have to say. Any mo- children's movie where Woody Allen stars as a CGI ant is just We're no in a good. dark place and we have to go. We're unsafe. <laughs> now, did you also see in 1998 The Truman Show or Ed TV? I actually saw both because weirdly enough, I was just talking about my terrible experience seeing The Truman Show for the first time. I was camping begrudgingly with my dad on Catalina Island, which is freezing at night. So it was a really unpleasant experience. And they had a one screen theater on Catalina Island. It might be different now. And 
my dad was like, well, okay, here's, she loves Jim Carrey at the time. Cause it was like <laughs> the mask, liar, liar. Yeah. You know, he was in living color. I was obsessed with Jim Carrey. And he's like, let's just go see this fucking Jim Carrey movie. And at the end of the movie, I cried at the end because like I just didn't get it. And it wasn't funny. And it was really <laughs> sad actually. So for the longest time, I didn't want to rewatch the Truman show because I had such a negative connotation. Oh and then I genuinely was scared to watch Ed TV, but I was like, oh, this is funny. This is what Truman show should have been. But then, you know, I've since come around about Truman show and it is obviously a very good movie, but yeah, that that's my really long winded um, explanation about Truman show versus Ed TV. Yes. I've seen both and I've been traumatized by both. I've seen Truman show. I've, I don't think I've ever seen Ed TV, like bits and pieces on TV, but it was funny. <laughs> Well, but it's a little a ch- too close to like how they actually make reality TV now. Yes. So it's kind of interesting in that way. Well, the Truman Show, I also have a traumatic story because it's one of the, I think it's the last movie I ever saw with my grandparents before my grandma died uh, in a car accident. Great. So that, that was- <laughs> Yours is just as sunny as mine. <laughs> uh, so um, I yeah, I can laugh about it in an uncomfortable right, way right now. But I definitely remember seeing this movie when I was 10. And I my grandparents and I were just like, I think, expecting it was something a bit more lighthearted, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, sl- there are a couple of others I'm going to bring up here. So sli- even though they're not the same plot, very similar ways of telling story, Sliding Doors and Run Lola Run. Have you seen both or either? I have seen all of Sliding Doors, sadly, and only yes. the parts of Run Lola Run that I needed to watch for my film degree. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Sliding Doors, also parts of Run Lola Run, Saving Private Ryan and the Thin Red Line. I've also seen both of those, but I saw Same. Private Ryan, Saving Private, Private Ryan first, like more recent to when it came out versus Thin Red Line, which I watched later as a more adult person, which I've never revisited Saving Private Ryan. Another kind of like traumatic movie to watch with dad that I was like not happy to be a part of. <laughs> um, and then the last one I'm going to bring up of these two, uh, Thomas Crown Affair and Entrapment. Also, I have seen both. Same. Same. But I saw Entrapment in theaters, which like that's a choice uh, <laughs> is given the year that it came out. And then watched Thomas Crown Affair later when I watched the original Thomas Crown Affair in during like my time in film school. Uh, and then I wanted to watch the remake of it. So I've seen I saw, watched them like back to back. I've seen Thomas Crown Affair in its entirety. I think I've seen. Yes, I have seen Entrapment. I just get them confused. It's the laser scene. Yeah, the laser. Jones. <laughs> so yeah, late 90s, as you can see, a lot more. And I, there, I had to cut this down because there were a lot more examples out but there. But that was but fun, though. What a fun little fun. trip down dueling narrative lane. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I could help. Uh, let's go back to 1998 because probably the most famous of these kind of twin movies had a showdown within two months of one another in the summer of 98 you had deep impact which was released on may 8th 1998 and armageddon which was released july 1st 1998 both made a lot of money at the box office obviously armageddon won this battle but they both had large budgets again armageddon with a much larger one and had various very famous producers known for their epic movies tied to them had a lot of hype between you know the making of them the release of them all that there's even parallel tearful goodbyes. There's a group of heroes sacrificing their lives to save humanity. Um, before we get into these, both you and I had seen Armageddon in the past, but until very recently, 
we both hadn't seen Deep Impact in its entirety, but thanks to Paramount Plus this week, that changed. Margo, care to share some thoughts? Well, the only reason I even watched it, because last night I really was like, yeah, I would really rather rewatch Armageddon because it's been a really long time. And then I watched the trailer for Deep Impact. I'm like, I barely even remember this movie coming out. I watched the trailer. I was like, oof, that's an oof. And then uh, Armageddon wasn't of like readily available to stream. I had to pay for it. So my cheapness won out. And so I ended up watching Deep Impact, which I... I wouldn't say regret. I'm glad I watched it, but I didn't enjoy watching it. Yeah, this was a very interesting movie to watch, you know, 25 years after it was released. Um, it's definitely what's interesting is it it wasn't released around the following movies I'm about to describe, but it gives quite a bit of um uh, how do you know those holiday ensemble movies that were very popular in the 2000s? Oh, like the Family Stone or something. Yeah. Well, and then like you had Valentine's Day and New Year's Day. Oh, and oh are Year's you? Day. So you're thinking specifically like uh, Gary Marshall movies, Gary yes, Marshall holiday movies. Yes, where we're following a lot of plot lines that kind of converge on one event. Usually, it's yeah. a much happier holiday, not <laughs> the the destruction of the Earth. But I think it was it was interesting to see how unlike Armageddon we're focusing on a lot of different stories in different directions what do you think I mean yes but also I feel like this movie is really serious and it takes everything that's happening so seriously and Mm -hmm. there is kind of no fun at all even though you know bad stuff is about to happen i mean they definitely take it like it's literally like deathly serious and i understand that it's the more scientifically correct movie but sure. Armageddon never pretends to be scientific in any way shape or form <laughs> this is Michael so Bay. i really yeah and i really appreciate that about armageddon because it is really fucking stupid like the idea of this happening is kind of fucking stupid although i will give deep impact that it has it has a lot more overlap with what we're currently dealing with with climate change than Armageddon really does. Like Armageddon doesn't care about the science at all, right? But Team yes. Impact also has a lot of logic issues, as we have pointed out, like the way that the lottery system works, uh, letting two 15-year-olds get married. Like there were a lot of like logic yes. leaps that we had to take along with it. And then in the middle of this movie, There's also this, you know, family drama that's not only playing out across like the different families that are going to be affected, but also mostly between Taya Leone and her dad and how he's like kind of like a scumbag and them like reconciling on top of like the world ending. It it just feels like it felt it feels like a very melancholic drama. Yeah, I I would agree with you that in the long run, if if one versus the other is playing on AMC, this is like the test, right? Mm-hmm. It's like one or the other's playing on AMC. I would pick Armageddon. There's like nothing else. I'd, I'd pick Armageddon. Like, I think the that while factually the accuracies and deep impact are good, I appreciate that it it kind of has maybe a more realistic feel as to what it would be like should we have that kind of danger come to us. Um, I also think it would be way worse, though. Like, that's also the thing, too. I mean, we've got Morgan Freeman as a president essentially reading 
pages upon pages of straight up exposition masked yes. as a presidential state of the union, yes. which kind yes. of feels like a lot. And he and everybody reacts. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say even everybody, but the people that we follow kind of almost don't even have like a reaction at first, yes. which is also kind of like difficult to to then gauge the urgency because we go from two years out to like immediately kind of quickly in the movie too, which is a little bit confusing because there's not really, maybe I missed the the time elapse card in the bottom half in the bottom corner of, of the movie, but there were parts of it that I was just sort of like, Oh my, like it takes forever to start. And then once it starts to get going, mm-hmm. it just, it feels like it throws all logic and reason out the window I, <laughs> in I, favor I, for this giant wave, which is insane. Yeah, I, it's interesting, right? We have the first five, 10 minutes of Deep Impact that, you know, are relevant to the plot, all that. But then we mm-hmm. take this 25 minute detour where there's a potential like affair. And I realized this was filmed probably before Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton, but it all, you know, I bet they kind of brought that up more because it was like, a, oh, it's of the times kind of story, right? But mm-hmm. yeah, there's just this de- unnecessary detour where we're thinking, wow, is Taya Leone going to be like the one uncovering a scandal here? Is the asteroid right. just something happening in the uh, background here? And then then we have what's his name great uncle roy just being like <laughs> it's just uh, yeah there's just a lot going on that i think kind of detracts from the the plot and for honest to god this could have been a hundred minute movie that Did would not need to be two hours at no all. it had no right being snip, that fucking long snip that affair like plot line or that misleading affair plot line and this movie could have probably flowed a lot better to be honest um, I love yeah. the ending where these people on the spaceship who are like <laughs> about to die are like tearfully saying goodbye to like a TV screen. I was like, this is fucking bleak, y'all. Like, I don't want to yeah. see this. I can I infer. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. And ultimately, well, I just Michael Bay in general. I'm not, you know, I don't think he is like this um, amazing director in the sense of like, you know, choices and all that he's boom 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 guy uh it's you know it's a summer blockbuster and it it crosses it checks every box and it did exactly what it was supposed to do for a 1998 summer blockbuster michael bay is really good at making movies by michael bay you know what i mean like you know what you are in for you can turn your brain off like i have to say ambu la ants was a, a great time it made zero sense but really it moves so quickly you're like what happened oh my god what's going on so he really just does his little lens flare thing the way no one really can you know and and armageddon was i mean really you could say it started with bad boys but i really feel like armageddon had the money to be like boom bitch like huge explosions like i mean yeah that's why like halfway through deep impact was like i really should have just rented armageddon shouldn't i yeah. Yeah. That was a yeah. I, it's young Ben cool. Affleck. Young mm-hmm. Ben Affleck. So fun. So fun. I think, yeah, to your point, it's very telling that during my research for the Armageddon portion of my notes, I uh, came across a, an article titled An Oral History of Not Armageddon, but of Michael Bay, as in mm. a bunch of people got together just to do an oral history of Michael Bay's career of people, various people who've worked with him as actors and crew. Did that come out like a couple of years ago? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I read that. It was really good. It was really, really good. Um, Yeah. He's a weirdo. 
but he's you a know, little weirdo. I don't really oh. know. He's not that little. He's very tall. He's that very tall weirdo. Uh, and I mean, when I talk about casting, when you talk about behind the scenes, there's just he likes he likes his control. He likes to control things. He's a little little. I don't really thing. actually get. I don't really actually get into that. But I do have a very fun quote from him. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, I think the order we should probably go is maybe chronologically how they were released. So we'll start with Deep Impact and go into Armageddon if that works for you. Sure. I mean, I I did Deep Impact last because that's not number one in my heart, but I can do that. It didn't have a Deep Impact. Oh, God, oh, I'm sorry. Really, I, like, I can't wait to forget I've ever seen this movie. <laughs> Well, let's 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 talk about Deep Impact because um, it was rela- released first and uh, how it really just wasn't that deep of an impact. Deep Impact or what I'd like to call Taya Leone Walk so Rachel Maddow and everyone else at M- NB- MSNBC could run or Child Marriage. It can save lives, maybe. Or not when you really. Were busy- <laughs> not really. It saved one one life, two lives. One and a half. One and a half. And that a half. baby's a half. <laughs> <laughs> or otherwise known as when you were busy shitting your diaper, Robert Duvall was walking the moon. So show some respect or <laughs> screw olds and single people. You don't deserve to live or, well, the twin towers were destroyed by a tsunami wave. So I guess in this universe, 9-11 doesn't happen. 9-11 is really a tsunami and it happens whatever day it happens in this movie. Yeah. Released May 8th, 1998. Deep Impact was directed by Mimi Letter. Leader is best known for being the first female graduate of the AFI Conservatory and has also directed The Peacemaker, Pay It Forward, Thickest Thieves, and most recently, On the Basis of Sex. She's also a veteran TV director. She won a few Emmys for for directing ER episodes and most recently directed some episodes of The Morning Show. Screenplay was written by, co-written by Bruce Joel Rubin and Michael Tolkien. Ruben is best known for writing Ghost, which he won the Oscar for, Jacob's Ladder, Time Traveler's Wife, and Stuart Little too, which I had to get in there because it does not fit with this like time traveling end mm-hmm. of world, all life and death. Unless Tolkien- there's some sort of director's cut of Stuart Little, Stuart Little too that we're unaware of. Ah, uh, yes, the E.B. White Raw edition. <laughs> you, I don't know. Tolkien on the the other co-writer is known for writing The Player, which was based off his book of the same name, Changing Lanes, Nine, and most recently created the miniseries The Offer about The Godfather. Pre-production for this movie, much like Armageddon, this movie had a big name with Steven Spielberg serving as an exec producer on this film alongside Richard Zanuck and David Brown. And it was distributed under Paramount, Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, and the then fairly new DreamWorks Pictures, which is Spielberg's production company with Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen. DreamWorks was not doing so hot at that point and wasn't the powerhouse it came to be known for. That would soon change with this movie, ironically, another twin movie of the year, Ants and the Prince of Egypt, followed by three consecutive Best Picture wins for American Beauty, Gladiator, and A Beautiful Mind, and of course, the Shrek and Ice Age film series. But back to Deep Impact, the movie and its script origins stem from two different pieces of source material. In the late 70s, producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown wanted to make remake the 1951 film When Worlds Collide, which was about Earth being threatened by a rogue star and efforts to save the planet. The two of them formed an independent production company called the Zanuck Brown Company at Universal, and they had a big hit 
from The Sting in 1973, which won the Oscar for Best Picture. And they were responsible for producing Spielberg's Sugarland Express and Jaws. So they started that partnership fairly early on. There were a few scripts developed for this remake, but they never really went anywhere. So cut to the 90s where Zanuck and Brown reach out to Spielberg about doing this When Worlds Collide remake. And Spielberg had just bought the rights to another source material for this film, the 1993 novel The Hammer of God by Arthur C. Clarke. Clarke was best known for co-writing the screenplay for 2001, A Space Odyssey with Stanley Kubrick. But back to Hammer of God, this book had a very similar plot to When Worlds Collide, and Spielberg had hoped to direct this movie himself. The three men essentially combined the two stories and commissioned a new script for what would become Deep Impact. The film project was announced in 1995 as a collaboration, and and ultimately it was determined the final movie was too different from the original source material. And while Clark's name was used in the publicity leading up to the film, ultimately the author didn't get a film credit, which really angered him in the end. Spielberg had intended to direct, but scheduling wasn't working out due to his prior commitments to working on directing Amistad, which was released in 1997. You might be wondering, Margo, why can't they wait until Steven Spielberg is done with Amistad to direct this film? Why why can't they uh, decide to release uh, Deep Impact in 1999 or even 2000? Does why? it have anything to do with money? Maybe it has something to do with Disney coming in. Oh, and, and buying Amblin? Well, and also uh, going after making an asteroid movie, which you're going to talk about later. Oh, I see. Yeah. So when Paramount and DreamWorks learn that Disney is also putting together their own asteroid movie, the clock starts ticking. And to ensure they would also release an asteroid movie in summer 1998, Spielberg and the producers decided to hire Mimi Leader, who had just finished directing The Peacemaker. And... Ultimately, they start producing, going into production uh, around 1997 with Dietrich Lohmann as the cinematographer, who the movie is actually dedicated to because he passed away while they were filming the film, sadly. So during production, Taya Leone's character, Jenny Lerner, obviously works for MSNBC. And you're probably like, MSNBC, why are they just operating like another CNN? Like, where's Rachel Meadow? Where's <laughs> Lawrence O'Donnell? Like, where are these people? Back then, MSNBC was a very new network. It had only been around for like two years and didn't have the identity as being kind of the liberal leading 24 hour news network as who's the antidote to Fox News. The original intent was to have Jenny work for CNN, but CNN thought this was a inappropriate request. They did not want to put their name on here and they thought they were above it. So actually this got MSNBC quite a bit of free press to be featured in this. Um, and I feel like we've heard this type of story before with several other like brands like Reese's Pieces and E.T. instead of M&M's like it was M&M wasn't um, down to be featured, but Hershey was like, yeah, let's put Reese's Pieces. And then that made Reese's Pieces a really popular candy. Originally in Morgan Freeman, uh, pre who plays President Beck's press conference, he says, life will go on. We will prevail. This is not Armageddon. And during production, they obviously found out that the rival Disney asteroid movie was going to be called Armageddon. So they had to edit that line out. There were a lot of other instances like this where they had to make sure that they were not uh, completely identical to Armageddon and tried to differentiate themselves. 
so speaking of lines in this movie, another really interesting thing, because this movie has a lot of awkward moments, specifically around the Elijah Wood and Lily Sobieski characters. <laughs> yeah, um, to say the least. So you may remember, Margo, there's this assembly scene where Leo is being recognized for helping discover the asteroid, and some kid yells out, you're going to have so much sex, which yeah. is like, feels what an wildly. odd segue to throw into the movie a bunch of like 15 year olds just feels really uncomfortable like at least say something like your mom's being honored like this is just no 15 year old <laughs> is gonna say this uh so that line was improvised by the actor jason doring which many of my fellow veronica Man mars fans will recognize as the actor who played logan her on again off again uh boyfriend oh. and later partner on the show yes Interesting. Uh, so, well, still, that was that was an wild. extremely jarring moment in a series of jarring moments. I think I was like washing a dish while I was watching that scene, and I just had to take a pause and rewind and make sure I had heard everything correctly. Mm -hmm. This movie made me scream "Why" several times, and that was one of them. That must have been one of the first. Yes, of many. Um, I do have to talk about it because I talk about it ad nauseum on this podcast. Uh, this movie was heavily filmed in the greater Washington, D.C. area. As you all know, I grew up uh -oh, around strap there. In. Get, get ready. Here we go. So here we go. We're, we're, going to, we're going to D.C. D.C. Well, native he over here clocking in. Well, here's the deal. They A lot of movies, when you go see and watch a movie or TV show that's set in D.C. or in Arlington, Virginia, usually it's filmed in L.A. or it's filmed somewhere else. They've shot quite a bit of this on location. So I was really excited about that. Uh, so did so they the really destroy the White House for this? <laughs> that was some early CGI. Uh, <laughs> But the traffic jam scene was actually filmed on Route 234 near Manassas, Virginia, which is like half an hour away from my parents' house. And they used about 2,100 extras in over 1,800 vehicles from locals who lived in Manassas. And the reason they were able to do this, Margot, is they were building a new bypass on that highway at the time. And it was under construction and had just finished, but hadn't been open to the public yet. So before they opened it, they used it for that scene so that they wouldn't be... Um, they wouldn't cause a huge traffic jam from filming this scene. So that's how they were able to get that scene. Hmm. Um, while most of the on-location scenes were filmed in the greater DC area, several sets were replicas, including the White House Situation Room and parts of the Pentagon. And they were actually able to get those really accurate because uh, one of the co-writers, Bruce Joel Rubin, was able to get access to tour these highly classified facilities because Steven Spielberg has like hella clout um, back this was when he was originally going to be the director. They were like, yeah, Spielberg movie, count us in. Like, come on over. The bridge where Taya Leona gets stopped by the FBI, the key bridge, actually belongs to two jurisdictions, Arlington, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. And they had to get permission from both jurisdictions to film that scene on a Sunday. So they did that. And a bunch of other, like, famous areas in D.C. So, like, the restaurant Sequoia in Georgetown. I think that's a scene where, like, she's meeting... She's not meeting her new stepmom for the first time, but is like not happy to see her again because she basically just found out this destructive asteroid is going to kill us all. Um, and then she's having lunch with her mom, played by Vanessa Redgrave, um, in the Hay Adams Hotel, I'm pretty sure, which I've been to with my mom. And the NASA offices uh, were actually filmed at the Edwards Air Force Base in California. Uh, so this is a very much like a Margo and Emily joint because there's like Southern California and LA with all the studios and sets, 
but also D.C. and Northern Virginia. And I thought that was kind of sweet. Final filming location worth noting, the scene where the quote unquote White House kitchen is and she like meets more and Taya Leone meets President Morgan Freeman for the first time is actually the kitchen in the Ambassador Hotel in L.A. where RFK was assassinated, which I found <sighs> very disturbing. I'm like, of all the kitchens in L.A. hotels, really, we had to Why go the most this. haunted one of all. <laughs> truly, truly. Um, so one final thing of behind the scenes, and then I'll quickly go into the release. As I'm listening to the music in the end credits, I'm like, oh, why does this choral orchestral score sound like it was painted in a shade of Titanic? Well, Margo, it's because James Horner also composed oh my this God, music really? for this film. Yeah, this is like the major first major score he does right after Titanic because that oh. came out late, late 97 and six months later, this movie came out. So that is why at the end you hear these haunted Probably a synthesizer, but sounds like choral music, kind of like Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Uh, so epilogue here, really deep impact grossed over 350 million worldwide on an 80 million production budget, which was a little more than half. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Armageddon's budget. And while Armageddon may have won the box office war, Deep Impact wins by a hair in the Rotten Tomatoes race with a 45% rating. Not great, but slightly better. Um, but really, the standout is the nerds. The scientists who work in space uh, always credit this movie as being one of the more accurate films out there that depicts a potential asteroid destroying the planet. There were several articles I read where multiple NASA scientists continued to praise the film for getting it right. And there were actually several scientists consulted for this film, including astronomers Gene Shoemaker, Carolyn Shoemaker, Josh Colwell, Chris Lucchini, former astronaut David Walker, and the former director of the NASA's Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center, Jerry Griffin. And many of these advisors make cameos in the mission control scenes of the movie when they are directing Messiah. Ultimately, I think it's, uh, as we talked about earlier, kind of just whatever of a movie it's not like a horrible movie but i'm also just like not willing to revisit it and was grateful like you said that it was free it's just i yeah i think that's really all i have to say about um deep impact i'd love to hear what you have to say about casting well even though we had never seen this movie before and don't want to ever see it again <laughs> i can i think that you and i are both in agreement and so is the rest of the internet that the best thing about this movie is the cast because yeah. when shit does go down with climate change we'll wish we had morgan freeman and his steady oh. voice guiding us not whatever Always. clown who will inev inevitably be in office and we also would want somebody as calm and collected as Taylor leone hosting msnbc and not fucking morning joe or someone 
<laughs> Mika and Joe guiding us towards destruction and their sexual tension. I would rather have Kelly Ripa and Mark Consuelos, okay? That's, those are my two cents. <laughs> speaking of, Morgan Freeman plays Tom Pack, which is the United States president who is secretly working with other world leaders to develop underground shelters after scientists determine that the Wolf-Buterman comet's collision with Earth is going to be an extinction-level event. So in the 20-plus years since this movie has come out, Freeman has not only played the president just twice more, it feels like a real missed opportunity. And he's played the president twice in a movie franchise that you just mentioned, Olympus Has Fallen and uh, The Angel Has Fallen or something to that effect is the follow-up to that. Anyway, his turn as leader of the free world came roughly midway between his biggest roles in 1995, which were in Outbreak and Seven, and right before he obviously had like another career resurgence in 2005 with Batman Begins. I mean, he's Morgan fucking Freeman. Deep Impact is like a drop in the bucket for a man who has 147 acting credits on IMDb. Does not stop. Okay, it's kind of hard to believe that John Favreau, before he owned most of Star Wars for Disney Plus, was a kind of like semi-serious actor. Uh, he was the fact, like every no, ensemble, not every, because his. I think that like. If you go back and look at his acting credits, like leading up to this, the Fav, he, he in this movie, he plays Gus Partenza and he's a medical officer of the Messiah spacecraft. And he attempts to destroy the comet before it can wipe out all of life on Earth. And spoiler for a 25 year old movie, he dies first and kind of unceremoniously to the point where Sean was like, wait, what happened to the Fav? He died. <laughs> But in 1998, Favreau was still just coasting off of Swingers popularity. And the only other ensemble movie he was in was something called like God's Country that was like an indie ensemble. So really, he didn't really have like a ton of like movie popularity, but he did have like reoccurring roles on Tracy Takes On and Friends. And then in the same year that he made Deep Impact, he made Very Bad Things, which are not um, genre tone similar in any way, shape or form. No. This is also the year that he directed one of his first movies, a TV movie called Bad Cop, Bad Cop. And because contrary to what I've been thinking all of these years, he didn't, in fact, direct Swingers. He only wrote it. Doug Lyman of Lived I Repeat slash Edge of Tomorrow directed Swingers. Anyway, his IMDb after Deep Impact, he had had like a couple of voiceover roles and he was like in the replacements. And then in 2001, he directs the sequel to Swingers made. And then a few years later, he would direct Elf. And the rest is kind of history. Robert Duvall plays Spurgeon Fish Tanner, and he is a veteran pilot who takes lead over the Messiah spacecraft after the mission to destroy the comet becomes an epic failure that we all watch in real time as well in the movie. Around this time of Duvall's career, he it was kind of his thing to be like the calm and the storm, and that's kind of what Fish was in this movie. Robert Duvall has been acting since the 60s, his breakout role as Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird, and he still acts to this day. He was in Adam Sandler's Hustle like a year ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, Taya Leone plays Jenny Lerner. And even though Deep Impact is more of an ensemble, I think we could both agree that Taya Leone is the main character of this whole thing. We experience a lot of the movie through her perspective. Jenny Lerner was an MSNBC reporter who inadvertently uncovers the existence of the comet, which then forces the U.S. government to make an announcement earlier than they had planned. In 1998, Taya had just come come off of starring... Michael Bay's bad boy. And sadly, since 2011's Madam Secretary, which ended in 2019, she hasn't really acted too much. But according to IMDb, her next upcoming project is an animated feature called Endangered. Elijah Wood plays Leo Leo Bierderman. 
He is a young teenage astronomer who first discovers the comet headed towards Earth and then marries Lily Sobieski in an effort to save her family. But we can get we've already gotten into too much of that. He was already kind of like aging out in this era of his career because right before Deep Impact, he was in Ang Lee's Ice Storm, which is, you know, an edgy drama. And then after Deep Impact, he goes on to play Casey Connor in The Faculty. A few years later, he'll star as Frodo. And again, the rest is history. James Cromwell, a.k.a. Greg's grandfather, Ewan Roy, a.k.a. James Cromwell again, plays the Secretary of Treasury, Alan Rittenhouse, whose own personal controversies are what leads to Leone to reveal, to force him to reveal the wolf Biderman comment and uh, force his hand in in the in the government really to come clean about what's really going on. Uh, immediately after this, he made Babe Pig in the City because he is a fucking legend. Blair Underwood plays Mark Simon. He is not only Mark Simon in this movie; he is Miranda's best ex boyfriend. He in this movie though plays the navigator of the Messiah spaceship before it flies directly into the comet, and I guess you can kind of understand what happens to his character from there. Leading up to Deep Impact, though, Underwood was in Set It Off and Gattaca, and he's going to be in that new Ava DuVernay movie, Origin, that comes out during, like, award season. I heard it's good. Got a lot of good festival buzz. Mm. Lily Sobieski plays Sarah Hockner, Leo Biederman's girlfriend. When she isn't a teen bride in this movie, she spends most of her time fleeing destruction that is uh, literally right after her. I mean, she makes it up to safety with her with her baby sibling, uh, with Elijah Wood. And you don't really understand what's next, but you know it's not going to be great. Deep Impact is sandwiched between Jungle to Jungle in 1997 and Never Been Kissed in 1999. And she retired from acting in 2012 to start a family. So that's what Lily Sobieski is up to. There are a few more stars of this movie, but these are really the ones that I felt were the most necessary to get into. And that is Deep Impact's casting. Amazing. I, yeah, God. I think I always thought Favreau was in more because for some reason, I feel like maybe it's like the Shazam Sinbad effect. I keep thinking Favreau was like in another ensemble comedy besides the replacements, but I know that's like pretty much it around that time. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, before leading up to the replacements, he's he like plays himself in a Sopranos episode. He's got like some oh, random right. voiceover <laughs> kid stuff. Yeah. But it seemed like he was really trying to pivot to directing kind of like yes. almost after that. So he was doing less of the acting stuff. Do you want me to get into some Armageddon and Aerosmiths don't want to miss a thing? Please, please do. Well, as you mentioned earlier, but maybe you have forgotten Armageddon was released July 1st, 1998. It was directed by Michael Bray and produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. In case you've never seen this motion picture classic, it's about a group of blue-collar deep-core drillers sent by NASA to stop a gigantic asteroid on a collision course with Earth. It stars Bruce Willis, Billy Bob Thornton, Ben Affleck, Liv Tyler, Will Patton, Steve Buscemi, William Fickner, who recently had a conversation with uh, and in promotion for Friend of the Pod, Stu Krieger's book, uh, Owen Wilson, Michael Clark Duncan, and Peter Stromae. It grossed a $553 million worldwide on a $140 million budget and was the highest grossing film of 1998. Suck it, Deep Impact. But according to the writer of Deep Impact, Bruce Joel Rubin, the production president of Disney stole his idea to make a rival asteroid movie. Boop, boop, boop. Shots fired by my dude, Bruce. But... And a joke about how many white guys does it take to write a script. Apparently, the number is nine. Actually, it's eight, technically. But only five are credited. Robert Roy Poole, Jonathan Hensley, Tony Gilroy, surprisingly, Shane Salerno, and J.J. Abrams. But the other writers involved are Paul Atancio, Scott Rosenberg, Robert Town, and one lady, Anne Biderman. 
Originally, it was Hensley's Hensley script based on Poole's original idea that had been given the green light by Touchstone, who released the movie. But it was Jerry Bruckheimer that decided to hire the succession of scribes for rewrites and polishes, but none of them ever to make it like more scientifically accurate, which if you're at all familiar with Michael Bay, that's not something he cares about. Bruce Willis ultimately came to the project because he had a three-picture deal with Touchstone and because they 86 his 97 movie Broadway Brawler, they compensated him with Armageddon, which he ended up having to take a pay cut for as part of this deal, which is starting to sound less and less of a deal the more I talk about it. Production began nearly a year before the movie was released on August 27, 1997 and finished in January of 1998. By the time it got to post-production in May, the budget had had, had to add an additional $3 million for special effects of the asteroid hitting Paris, rude, uh, because they wanted this additional footage so that the trailer wouldn't have people confused as to which asteroid movie it was. They wanted people to know, oh, we spent money on this, unlike Deep Impact. By the time it hit theaters, no pun intended, it became the third highest grossing movie of Fourth of July July weekend behind Men in Black and Independence Day. It would go on to be the highest grossing film of 1998, uh, right behind the second highest grossing film in the U.S., which was Saving Private Ryan. What a time. Like most of Bayham movies, it got mixed to negative reviews, but only Armageddon has the distinct honor of being on Roger Ebert's most hated films list. Ebert stated, quote, the movie is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained, which I I respectfully disagree. (laughs) This is literally how you could also describe any of Bay's other movies, but that doesn't mean they are bad per se. It's five stars, but also one star. Anyway, Ebert went on to name Armageddon as the worst film of 1998, although he was originally considering Spice World because this guy has got me fucked up right now. Like, Spice World? Come on. A grand old time. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, he agreed that the film central premise, quote, NASA could actually do a situation like this was completely unrealistic. Additionally, the largest known potentially hazarded, hazardous asteroid, a.k.a. a PHA, is uh, 999,000 JM8, which is only seven kilometers in diameter, while the asteroid in the movie is described as being, quote, the size of Texas. Near the end of the credits, there is a disclaimer, though, stating, quote, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's cooperation and assistance does not reflect an endorsement of the contents of this film or the treatment of the characters depicted therein. Making making the case for the importance of physical media, though, in the commentary track for Armageddon, Ben Affleck says, quote, I asked Michael why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than it was to train (laughs) astronauts to become oil drillers. And he told me to shut the fuck up. So that was the end of that talk. And I don't know a better (laughs) note to go out on than that. Truly considered one of the greatest audio commentaries on a DVD of all time. I just, I've only heard bits and pieces, but I really need to listen to it all the way through. And I may take tonight as I'm editing this episode to do so. So let's get into some casting here. So as you mentioned earlier, Margot, Bruce Willis plays Harry S. Stamper, the leader of this ragtag group of oil drillers. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was originally considered for the role of Harry Stamper. The irony here is that Schwarzenegger and Willis, along with Sylvester Stallone, very famously co-owned Planet Hollywood. RIP, the kids will never know what they missed out on. Bruce Willis, as you mentioned earlier, was an A-lister at this point after having been in Pulp Fiction in 1994, 12 Monkeys in 1995, The Fifth Element in 97, 
but had a few slumps with some bad reviews and some movies that didn't do as well as anticipated. And as you alluded to earlier, to add fuel to the fire, he was forced to star in this movie because he was an A-list actor jail with Disney. At one <laughs> point in the mid-90s, Willis was set to star in a rom-com called Broadway Brawler, which was going to star him alongside Mara Tierney as a retired ice hockey player. Because Disney likes to capitalize on a trend, they were pitching this as their Jerry Maguire. It was set to be <laughs> it was set to be co-produced by Willis, and as part of his producer duties, twenty days into production, he had fired multiple people because he felt they weren't working up to his standards, <laughs> leaving Disney to shut production down and to sue Bruce Willis or threaten to sue for seventeen point five million dollars. Bruce Willis was like, "Please, please, please, don't take my money, and I will do whatever you need me to do." And he agreed, in fact, to work on three films for a discounted rate, Armageddon, The Sixth Sense, and The Kid. These three movies together grossed $1.3 billion worldwide, although The Kid is not a movie anyone should ever see. It is with the lesser of the Breslin siblings. Yeah, I mean, I think that trilogy is real strong. Then you're like, and then The Kid, and it goes, Poof. it's like, at least at least he had the first two, you know? He, he did. Certainly did. It, he really redeemed himself at the end of the decade. Michael Bay originally was thinking of having someone like his rock star, Sean Connery, to play Harry Stamper. He thought age-wise, this guy needed to be a bit older than Bruce Willis. He liked Bruce Willis, but he thought he was too young to play Liv Tyler's dad. But Michael Bay was obviously thinking about dads in L.A. and not an oil rig driller dad in rural Texas. So when he actually met real guys who worked in the field, he realized, oh, yeah, Bruce Willis probably would be around that age uh, if you were, you know, the dad would probably be around Bruce Willis's age in this Michael Bay world. And so Bruce Willis became Harry Stamper. Billy Bob Thornton is Dan Truman, and there were a lot of people considered for this role. It's Tim Robbins, Tom Hanks, Robert De Niro, Michael Keaton were all considered. And Billy Bob was better known as a character actor who didn't do large budget films of the Michael Bay variety. And according to Thornton, at the table read, Steve Buscemi was wondering out loud, like, why both of them had been cast in this <laughs> Michael Bay movie. And Billy Bob Thornton knew that this came because his manager coincidentally happened to be on the same plane ride as Jerry Bruckheimer one time and suggested that for Armageddon, he cast, as Thornton referred to it in a People interview, quote, some really good, like, actors, actors to play this role. So Billy Bob Thornton would go on to star in Primary Colors year, later that year, pushing Tin in 1999, Monsters Ball in 2001, and Friday Night Lights in 2004, and has been known for several roles since then. Uh, who else do we have in this cast? We have Mr. Ben Affleck as A.J. Frost. Affleck had a pretty banner few years, and 1998 was kind of the ultimate breakthrough to the A-list. He and Matt Damon had just won the best screenplay for Goodwill Hunting um, at the Oscars. You may remember that they brought their moms as their dates and also starred in Shakespeare in Love, where he started dating Gwyneth Paltrow and also starred in Phantoms in 1998. Armageddon would mark Affleck's first big budget film as he had mostly been in indie darlings made by Miramax, yikes, ensemble comedies and dramas, or Kevin Smith movies, also made by Miramax. Michael Bay made Ben Affleck go, get his teeth straightened for this role, Margot, because Michael Bay is a tall little weirdo, and $20,000 of the movie's budget went into making Ben Affleck's teeth straight. I would expect nothing less from my floppy-haired freak of a man. <laughs> Liv Tyler and I played... want everyone to know that he doesn't just bully hot girls like Megan Fox. He also bullies Ben Affleck. He bullies everybody. He bullies absolutely everyone, and it's it, he will get his way. 
you will look the Michael Bay way <laughs> come hell or high water. Mm-hmm. Liv Tyler played Bruce Willis's daughter, Grace Stamper, and later uh, Ben Affleck's wife. She turned down the role twice before finally accepting. And this role was turned down by a few people, Mila Jovovich, Robin Wright, which just seems kind of weird. Um, and then Nev Campbell, who had just gotten off of filming Scream. And Denise Richards was considered for Grace Stamper. And this is right around Wild Things coming out. So it makes mm. a lot of sense. Uh, really excited about Beverly Hills' new season, by the way. Oh, I screamed when she walked in with Camille. I was like, oh, my God. And then immediately gets into it with Eric. Erica, I love it. I live. I live. As I texted a friend, I was like, between Potomac, Miami, and Beverly Hills all coming back, I, I feel my will to live intensifying. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, side sidebar. No, no. I, I brought, I'm the one who brought it up. Liv Tyler was known for a few ensemble roles at this time, including That Thing You Do in Empire Records, both of our faves. But like Ben Affleck, this was her first big blockbuster with the Lord of the Rings franchise being her next big role a few years later. She was also very famously cast in an Aerosmith music video for Crazy alongside Alicia Silverstone as part of Silverstone's Aerosmith video trilogy, which you'll probably talk about a little later. If you're a dad and the lead singer of a rock band like Steven Tyler and your video requires two naughty schoolgirls, including one who does a striptease, the first person that comes to mind is, of course, going to be your daughter, right? Right? To be fair, they didn't really have a relationship growing up, although this is a weird place to start. (laughs) It's certainly (laughs) a weird place to kick it off. Uh, Affleck and Tyler were really good friends, and that's probably why their chemistry in this movie is not the best, because they were kind of like, gross, we're kissing each other, and we're basically like brother and sister. Um, But their lack of chemistry earned them a Razzie nomination for Worst Screen Couple in 1999, which Affleck has since won twice, once for... Once for Geely with his now wife, J-Lo, and later for Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of the Justice with Henry Cavill. (laughs) And of course, uh, Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler would very famously star a few years later in Kevin Smith's Jersey Girls, which also features J-Lo. Will Patton as Chick. I mean, this movie is chock full of character actors, so I'm going to really talk about maybe the main three or four. That's what um, I had to do with Deep Impact. You you, just, you bop around however you need because it's already stacked. And like, how much do you want me to talk about Duke Gray Scott? You know, like, I, I, gotta I keep know. It, you got to keep it to like the core, the main. So so and I've done just that as best as I can. Uh, so Will Patton plays Chick, uh, the guy, you know, with the son who doesn't know it's his dad. Uh <laughs> Patton's been in a lot of stuff. He's much more of a character actor than known by name. But at this point in his career, most notably had been in Silkwood and Desperately Seeking Susan and The Postman. And many of you probably best know him for starring in Remember the Titans a few years later as Coach Yost, a.k.a. the white coach in Remember the Titans. Um, Steve Buscemi as Rockhound. Buscemi at this point was like, Again, great character actor career. He had been in Quentin Tarantino movies, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, worked really closely with the Coen brothers. He had been in Fargo. And that same year as Armageddon, he was in The Big Lebowski. Armageddon marked his second big budget blockbuster in two years after he had been in Con Air in 1997. And he also spent a lot of the 90s showing up in Adam Sandler movies as minor roles. And when Buscemi was pitched Rockhound, he really graciously accepted because he was pitched Rockhound as being like very different than a very Steve Buscemi role. 
Uh, he was supposed to be this heroic geologist and he accepted the role because it was supposed to be so different. He was a, he hated being typecast into what can only be described as Steve Buscemi roles. Um, and then once he gets cast, the script changes on him and the sleazy characteristics are kind of written into it. And one other thing is that Steve Buscemi also wanted to get his teeth straightened, just like Ben Affleck. But, but Michael Bay said, absolutely not. <laughs> Interesting. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> William Fickner, who you mentioned earlier, recently uh, interviewed our friend Stu Krieger as part of his book tour, stars as Colonel Willie Sharp. And again, another great character actor. Fickner, over the years, is best known for being in a bunch of big movies. At the point of Armageddon, he had just done Contact the year prior. He had been in Heat in 1995. Armageddon was his one movie credit in 1998, but he appeared in Go the next year and The Perfect Storm in 2000. He did Pearl Harbor with Michael Bay in 2001 and with Jerry Bruckheimer did Black Hawk Down. And he's gone on to store in a bunch of shows, including Prison Break, Crossing Lines, and Mom. Owen Wilson, this is a very early role for Owen Wilson. Like he had just been in Anaconda the year prior. And this is kind of his first big time blockbuster outside of Anaconda, which grows, you know, some money, but not Michael Bay money. This was only a six movie acting credit. If you count Bottle Racket as two credits, because there was a short version and a feature length. He'd also been in The Cable Guy in 1996 and As Good As It Gets in 97. He'd go on to be in Rushmore in 1998 and followed that with Shanghai Noon and Meet the Parents in 2000. He continues to do a lot of Wes Anderson films, but it was mostly stuck to comedies over the years. And then the last two people I want to talk about, or three people really quickly, Michael Clark Duncan, RIP, is fair. This was actually his first major film role. Prior to this, he had done a few small roles on TV and film. And this was big for him, but the following year would be a banner year for Michael Clark Duncan as he'd go on to star in The Green Mile. And he was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar. And he would go on to act in several big movies, including another Bruce Willis film, Whole Nine Yards, Planet of the Apes, Scorpion King, Sin City, and Talladega Nights, among many other credits before sadly dying of a heart attack in 2012. Keith David as General Kimsey, again, great character actor, multitude of credits. Um, and to prepare for his role, he actually studied Colin Powell's life um, and read his biography, did a lot of research so that he could pre prepare himself to be in that uh, role. And finally, Peter Samari as Lev Antropov, the Rocosmos Cosonaut. He's actually Swedish and he's another great example of a character actor, had been in Fargo, The Lost World and The Big Lebowski that same year. Um, one final thing I wanted to note was actually Michael Hutchins of In Excess was originally going to be a small role in this film. Uh, sadly, he passed away in 1997, so that never came to fruition. And that's what I have on casting. Who was he supposed to play? I think that it wasn't like a specific role. It just, it like, just like a I saw cameo or movie. something. Yeah, or like maybe they were thinking about writing a role for him or something. It just I didn't find any other details. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well. I mentioned it at the top, but we didn't get to it. So let's talk about a cursed song that would play that would plague thousands of weddings <laughs> in the '90s. I don't want to miss a thing. I would argue that this song was as big, if not bigger, than the movie itself. And then I think is a play in reverse nepotism because Liv Tyler is Steven Tyler's daughter, and Aerosmith, uh, for the un uninitiated, uninitiated, they perform the titular theme song for Armageddon. So just just think about it, okay? Loose change is my conspiracy theory here. 
I Don't Want to Miss a Thing is one of four songs that are performed by the band in this movie. To be fair, some of them are, are songs that they've already, you know, recorded for other albums because uh, they had What Kind of Love Are You On, Come Together in Sweet Emotion. This song was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song at the 71st Academy Awards in 1998, but lost to When You Believe, which is a banger, from the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. The ballad was originally written by the Susan Lucci of Best Original Song, uh, Diane Warren, and she had written this initially for Celine Dion or, quote, somebody like that. In a 1997 interview with Barbara Walters, Diane Warren said that she was watching an interview with James Brolin and Barbara Streisand. Brolin said that he missed Streisand when, she, when they were asleep and Warren wrote down the words, I don't want to miss a thing before there was even a song. What? Uh-huh. Yep. Just what? jotting that down. Don't want to miss a My thing. My God. <laughs> the song made its radio debut on May 12, 1998, and the song was supposed to only be on the Armageddon colon the album soundtrack, but it became so popular that Columbia re- released it as a single and it debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and stayed there through September. The, it was the band's first and only number one single in the U.S. Now, this music video was made during a glorious time when music videos also served as like a four minute recap of the entire movie and was also digitally superimposed into all of the TVs that happened to be within the movie to make the music video seem like people were watching it and getting emotional watching Steven Tyler's like mouth do that thing and then his little hand movements. But really, they're probably crying because like a fucking asteroid is heading towards Earth, not because they had to watch Steven Tyler perform. <laughs> but the video itself was shot at the Minneapolis Minneapolis Armory. And it has that weird like ending shot where Liv Tyler is getting really worked up after after watching her 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 real life dad perform, which is a performance alone that I think her performance alone there gives um a reason why she should be a guest star on Righteous Gemstones so we can hear her say daddy yes. with the best of them. But even still, it was just because she's like reacting to Bruce Willis' dad in the movie, but they've taken him out and put real yeah. dad Steven Tyler there. So it's a little bit of like um, like a little bit of like, um, what is it? Like an Escher drawing or something. It, well, it's, it, it, it also implies that that our, that it's Aerosmith that's going to save us from an yes. asteroid with rock and roll. Even though, like, they don't even go up in the ship, they get blasted no. by the ship, which they 100% no. would not survive. So, no. we, I, a lot of things are happening here. But the band plays with a full orchestra backing them. Oh. And what's supposed to be, like, a studio, but really is, like, NASA, because, like, it reveals at the very end that it's not a studio, you jerk off. It's really, like, where they launch Space Shuttle Freedom from. And then they have, like, um, F, like F-15s and T-30 at T-38 fighter jets flying in the background. It's all very Fleet Week coded, which I'm getting, you know, we're already getting like an ass full of and it's only Wednesday and it hasn't even started yet. So the the music video was very funny to watch at this particular time, like in the Bay Area with Fleet Week approaching. But this yeah. song, even though it got overplayed and is kind of vaguely annoying, you know, it's still... I hate to say it, it still goes. It's, you know, you it's turn it on. It's power. It's staying power. But that's all I've got for the I don't want to miss a thing phenomenon because the song was truly fucking everywhere. everywhere. I feel like I heard it for like three years straight. Listen, if you were born into the mid to late 1980s, uh, there is Nary, a school dance you attended for a oh while my God. That, didn't play, that didn't play this or All My Life by Casey and JoJo as a slow dance. Sometimes song. both. <laughs> Sometimes both. If you were really lucky, if there was time, you got both. <laughs> AB. Uh, well, before we end it for today, do you have any final thoughts? 
Well, I think what we've really learned here today is there is a better asteroid movie, and I think it's Armageddon. And I'm and I'm, we're aligned so on this too. So I don't really feel like I'm going to get much pushback from you about this final thought. Yeah, I would say again, given if it's on AMC, I'm watching Armageddon over Deep Impact. And I also just want to say. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate your support. Uh, As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen to podcasts. And while you're there, maybe leave us a rating. Maybe leave, leave us a review. We always love to hear from you all. Additionally, you can find us on social media at Instagram and Facebook at the Old Millennials Pod. We're always posting fun things, and I'm usually sharing some fun TikToks from newlyweds or another old MTV show. Um, and, you know, keep listening. And until next time, bye bye. Don't want to miss a thing. Bye bye. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.